The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to Breakdown, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, ajcbreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. They independently told the same story because it came out of the defendant's mouth. That's direct evidence of his guilt. I'm walking up right up to where the house would be. All right, I'm going to walk right here. I'm going to act, I'm going to give myself a little bit of time, like I'm starting a fire. I lost everything. I have nothing. Nothing. The only clothes I had, the only clothes we had, were the clothes on our butt. Welcome to Episode 7. This is it, the last scheduled episode of Breakdown. Thanks for listening. It's been quite a journey. In Episode 6, we told you that a judge in South Georgia's Telfair County had granted Justin Chapman a new trial. So you think, what's next? A new trial, right? Well, not exactly. Actually, not by a long shot. First, the state attorney general appealed the judge's decision to the state Supreme Court. The attorney general's office has never explained why it did so. Presumably, it thought Chapman was truly guilty and wanted him to stay in prison for life. But they've never said, The appeal meant that nothing would happen in Chapman's case until there was an official transcript of the three-day hearing in Telfair County. Only then, when the Georgia Supreme Court had a full case file to read, only then could both sides appear before the justices to argue. So, how long does it take to prepare a transcript? A week? A month? Three months? Well, the gestation of the 756-page transcript was the same as the gestation for a human. Nine long months. Meanwhile, Justin Chapman, whose conviction had been thrown out, continued to sit in prison. Each day of waiting for the hearing transcript was another day in a cell for Chapman. From the ruling in Telfair County to the arguments before the Supreme Court, 307 days. This is not particularly uncommon. The wheels of justice often seem to be square. Justice moves at its own glacial pace so slow that it sometimes stops looking like justice. Instead, it looks like a rush hour traffic jam on Atlanta's perimeter. S15A0147, S15X0148, William Danforth Warden versus Justin W. Chapman and vice versa, Paula Smith for appellant, John Raines for appellee. We have 20 minutes aside. Each side will be responsible for keeping up with your own time. We do have... The state Supreme Court hearing finally took place January 21, 2015. It lasted just 40 minutes. You know, that's the same amount of time it took the jury to find Chapman guilty in 2007. 
The Georgia Supreme Court chamber is ornate, elegant, imposing. The seven justices sit at a raised bench shaped like a crescent. The very walls behind them are marble. Chiseled into the stone behind the justices is the extraordinary Latin phrase, Fiat Ustitia Ruat Caelum. Let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. How about that? This court may sometimes falter, but it can't aspire to greater heights than that. With all the polished wood and gleaming stone, well, if you're looking for all the power and majesty of this state, you'll find it here. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, I'm Paula Smith here today on behalf of the warden, urging this court to reverse the grant of habeas corpus relief and reinstating Mr. Chapman's murder conviction and life sentence from Harrelson County. Arguing on behalf of the state was a senior lawyer in the state attorney general's office. There were a number of issues in play in this appeal, but this quickly became apparent. The justices were most concerned with the lower court's finding that the prosecution had withheld important evidence that could have helped Chapman's defense. In an earlier episode, we talked about Brady violations. And yes, it's time for a review of our Lesson in the Law. In Brady v. Maryland, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that prosecutors must turn over evidence that could help the defense. This includes evidence that discredits a prosecution witness or shows that the defendant might not have committed the crime. The Brady principle is so important that it doesn't matter whether the prosecution intentionally hid the evidence or simply forgot to hand it over. It's still a violation of the Constitution. And if the court decides that the withheld evidence could have changed the verdict, the defendant must be granted a new trial. In Episode 6, I told you about Judge Frederick Mullis in Telfair County. He had found three Brady violations, and that's why he granted Chapman a new trial. First, there was the videotaped interview with the prosecution's star witness that was never turned over to Chapman's public defender, Jan Hankins. That witness was jailhouse snitch Joe White. He told jurors that Chapman confessed to him that he started the fire that killed Alice Jackson. White also testified that he was not looking for favors from the prosecution in exchange for his testimony. At that time, White was facing child molestation charges. Here's White being questioned by Jan Hankins about this very issue. You were trying to get favor from Investigator Stevens from the district attorney's office in exchange for testimony. I was not trying to get favor. You were trying to get a deal out, out of testifying against Justin Chapman, weren't you? No, I was not. But in the videotape that wasn't turned over, White did say he was looking for a deal. And the jury never heard that. Here's Brady violation number two. The second page of a letter from White to his pastor was also not turned over to the defense. Chapman's lawyers have contended that the letter indicates that White was seeking a deal in exchange for his cooperation. Finally, and most alarmingly, was the third Brady violation. The snitch, Joe White, had said that a fellow inmate at the Harrelson County Jail would corroborate his story that Chapman confessed during a prayer session. That other inmate was William Liner. Prosecutor Charles Rooks was planning to use Liner to back up White's story. He put Liner on his witness list and, shortly before the trial, drove up to a North Georgia prison to talk to him. But Liner steadfastly maintains that he did not back up White's story. In fact, he completely contradicted it. Liner offered sworn testimony in the hearing before Judge Mullis, and he's also told me directly that Chapman never 
said any such thing in his presence. Here's part of my interview with Liner. Do you remember being in prayer sessions at all there? No. Not really? No? He said you were in a prayer session with Justin Chapman where he said, thank God for allowing me to be there when the fire started so I can get my wife and kids out. What, no, what, that's not true at all. You recall anything like that at all? No. <laughs> okay. Not at all. It did not happen. When you heard that, what was, what was your impression? Oh, it blew my mind. And, you know, I don't know. I couldn't believe it. Okay. All right. <laughs> but then, you know, being in the situation he was in, I could believe him saying he'd done it. And I can kind of get the impression of the person that he was. But why he said that I was privy to the conversation, I have no idea. Liner said he told the same thing to Rooks. Chapman's new legal team has introduced evidence showing that Rooks, after interviewing Liner in prison, canceled an order to have Liner taken from prison to Harrelson County so he could testify. Rooks never disclosed any of this, Judge Mullis found. At the hearing before Mullis, the state put up no evidence that challenged Liner's account. None. For the life of me, I cannot understand why the state appealed this ruling. Liner's testimony was devastating and it was never challenged. Whatever the state's intentions were in filing the Supreme Court appeal, it meant Chapman was going to stay locked up for several more months. Prosecutor Rooks has told me he is frustrated that the state didn't call him to testify at the hearing in Judge Mullis's court. Rooks claims that he turned over everything he had to Chapman's public defender. Mullis found otherwise. And regardless, State Attorney Paula Smith had to concede to the justices that Liner had contradicted White's testimony, but she said it didn't really matter. Here she is arguing before the Supreme Court. The, the record uh, shows that Mr. Rooks went to see Mr. Liner, who was incarcerated at a state prison, and uh, his, Mr. Liner's testimony was that he said he didn't hear it, it wasn't so, and so the prosecutor elected not to uh, produce him and have him testify at trial. But the state did call an individual named Tommy Pike, who had been in the same cell pod, and he said, no, absolutely no way did I ever hear Mr. Chapman say anything like that. So Mr. Liner's testimony we submit is cumulative of what the jury already heard with respect to what Mr. Chapman said during the prayer session. It is true that Tommy Pike, another inmate in the Harrelson County Jail, testified that he never heard Chapman confess to the crime, but Pike also testified that he thought Chapman may have committed the crime. Liner has said no such thing. Now it's time to meet one of the major brains on the state Supreme Court bench. David Namias went to Harvard Law School just as President Obama did. In fact, Namias and Obama were on the Distinguished Law Review at the same time. But that's about all the two have in common, philosophically speaking. Namias later clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia at the U.S. Supreme Court, and he's emerged as a similar figure on the bench, brilliant, articulate, and conservative. After the September 11 attacks, Namias, then a federal prosecutor in Atlanta, went to Washington and became one of the Justice Department's leading prosecutors against terrorism. In 2004, President George W. Bush nominated him to become U.S. Attorney in Atlanta. Five years after that, Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue appointed Namias to fill a vacancy on the Georgia Supreme Court bench. With his background, Namias well knows the roles and obligations of prosecutors, certainly better than most prosecutors. He's also the justice who asks the most questions during oral arguments, and Chapman's case was no exception. 
So, State Attorney Paula Smith had just argued that William Liner's testimony was cumulative. Well, what does this mean? It means that the jury had already heard it, even if it didn't hear it from Liner. Someone else, in this case Tommy Pike, testified he never heard Chapman confess. So, Smith argued the jury didn't need to hear the same thing from Liner, too. Anomious wasn't buying any of that. Turning you know, briefly. You know, saying something like that's cumulative. You got a bunch of jail snitches testifying. One of them says the defendant confessed, which is potentially devastating if you believe them. Another jail inmate says, nah, not true. You can say that's just cumulative, but adding up jailhouse snitches is more important than adding up most witnesses, right? So, so the state got two jailhouse folks. Exactly. And and the, they only let the defense have one and suppressed one to kind of even it two to two. Did you hear that? Namius used the S word, suppressed. He seems to be saying flatly that the record shows prosecutor Charles Rooks deliberately withheld the liner evidence. And he hammered that point home in his next questions to Smith. There's no dispute that the prosecution team knew about him, knew what he would say, and intentionally took him off the witness list, or took him off appearing after they found out he wasn't going to help, right? According to Mr. Liner, and that, that is testimony the habeas court did credit. Is that not supported by the record? It, if you believe, I can't say that it is not supported by the record. This was testimony of Mr. Liner, which the habeas court chose to credit. In other words, Smith was conceding the point. Arguing on Chapman's behalf was John Raines, one of the lawyers working for Chapman for free. He was a young associate at the top Atlanta law firm Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore. This was his first time making an argument in the state Supreme Court. He told the court that Liner's testimony would have been powerful evidence if the jury had heard it. As Justice Namius indicated in his earlier questioning, when you have competing jailhouse snitches, the more you have on your side, the better, and that's something uh, that Chapman should have been entitled to. But more importantly, if you read Mr. Pike's testimony in its entirety, it's not as strong as Mr. Liner's testimony. Mr. Pike simply disavows knowing if there was a confession. That's not the same thing as denying that it happened. And more importantly, Mr. Pike said maybe Mr. Chapman committed the fire, maybe he didn't, which is certainly not wholly exculpatory testimony of the sort that Mr. Liner would have offered. In addition, Mr. Liner testified at the habeas hearing that he was familiar with the reputation uh, for honesty of um, Mr. White, and that it was known within the jail that, quote, Mr. White would do anything to get out from underneath the child molestation charges against him. Raines also reminded the court that White's credibility was key to the prosecution's case. Then, Namius asked a question that seemed to leave little doubt about what he thought of the prosecution's conduct. Is the trial prosecutor who, who uh, canceled Liner's um, appearance, is that person still serving as an assistant DA? I do not believe so, Your Honor. Uh, as of the last few months, uh, he was still serving at the beginning of this year. Uh, I believe he is no longer serving, but I, I don't know that for certain. Raines was right. The current district attorney for Harrelson County, Jack Browning, had already confirmed to me that Rooks no longer works as an assistant DA. But he also said Rooks' exit from the office had nothing to do with his work on Chapman's case. Just a reminder, this is Episode 7. I've been asking Rooks since before Episode 1 to talk to me about this. We've spoken on the phone and exchanged a few emails, but he has declined to sit down for an interview. Now in private practice, 
Rooks takes cases for Georgia's public defender system. He represents poor people accused of crimes. Wrapping up his argument, Raines made an impassioned plea to the Supreme Court on Chapman's behalf. Before I sit down, I, I do want to stress uh, that Mr. Chapman testified at the habeas hearing unequivocally that he did not commit this crime. And the Telfair Superior Court made a credibility finding that covered Mr. Chapman's testimony. There was evidence before the Telfair Superior Court that a renowned polygrapher had examined Chapman twice and with a 99.9 degree of certainty had concluded he's telling the truth when he says he didn't set this fire. And so we would ask the court to keep those, those issues in mind. Mr. Chapman's been in prison now since 2007, and we would like to see him released. Now it was time to wait for the Supreme Court decision. Three months later, Chapman's attorneys, Mike Kaplan and John Raines, found out the ruling was about to be issued, but they didn't know what it would say. That made for an angst-ridden, sleep-deprived weekend in April. Here's how they remember it. So the Georgia Supreme Court is interesting. They tell you the Friday before what opinions they're going to release on Monday. So we knew Friday afternoon that the decision in Justin's case was going to come out the following Monday. So I was thinking about it all weekend. I do not pray on a regular basis, only on special circumstances in my life. And I will never forget uh, the prayer that I made at about 1 o'clock in the morning on that Monday morning uh, as I was anticipating the, whether I would even sleep by you know, the 8 o'clock release or 8 o'clock release time of the opinion. Uh, I could barely sleep uh, the Sunday night uh, before the opinion came out. I remember getting up extra early and being ready by my phone uh, for 8 o'clock when the opinions came out. And the opinion actually came out a little before 8, and uh, I opened it immediately and skipped to the end uh, to see what the decision was. The same Supreme Court that unanimously rejected Chapman's first appeal in 2012 now unanimously granted him a new trial. In a seven-page decision, the court found that the prosecution's Brady violations were so grave that the outcome of the trial might have been different if the defense had known all the prosecution knew. To read a copy of the Supreme Court's ruling, go to ajcbreakdown.com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Okay, remember now, Chapman hadn't just won a new trial. His conviction for murder and arson had also been thrown out. It was as if the whole case reverted to early 2007. He was still charged with the crimes, but he was no longer convicted of them. The state prison system could no longer hold him. He had to be transferred back to the Harrelson County Jail. There, local authorities had some decisions to make. Should they retry him? Should they agree to let him post bond while they considered how to proceed? Or should he have to stay in the local lockup instead? As you're well aware of by now, 
There have been a lot of strange and unusual things connected with this case. And Episode 7 wouldn't be Episode 7 without some more. So, the whole case moved back to where it began. And that's a small place. Harrelson County has about 28,000 people, not even enough to fill up the Braves Stadium. But Cannon, the county seat, has 1,100 residents. That's not even enough people to fill up a large Atlanta high school. Bremen, where Justin Chapman lived, has about 6,200 souls. So, this is small-town Georgia. Take Judge Michael Murphy as an example. He was, you'll recall, the judge who presided over the original trial. He was also the son of longtime Georgia House Speaker Tom Murphy. Well, the judge grew up in a house on Sharp Street in Bremen, right across the street from the very house that burned to the ground in Justin Chapman's case. The district attorney in Harrelson County is responsible for making the decision on whether Chapman will be retried. But wait a minute. Hold on. The DA is Jack Browning, and guess what? Browning, court records indicate, briefly represented Justin Chapman in this very case when he served in the local public defender's office. Not only that, remember Joe White, the jailhouse snitch who helped send Chapman to prison? He was in jail because he'd been charged with child molestation. And guess who represented him at trial and got him acquitted? None other than Jack Browning when he served as public defender. Now Browning is on the other side. And he not only once represented Chapman, he also once represented White, who will certainly have to be the state's star witness against him. These look like conflicts of interest to me. After Chapman was taken back to the Harrelson County Jail, he got a hearing before Judge Murphy to see if he could go home or stay locked up while prosecutors decided what to do next. The bond hearing was held May 11, 2015 at the county courthouse in Buchanan in the same courtroom where Chapman was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 2007. Chapman's lawyer said Browning had fatal conflicts and shouldn't be on the case. In fact, Judge Murphy asked Browning to leave the prosecution table, and Browning got up and sat in the back of the courtroom to watch the proceedings. Knowing this could be a possibility, Browning had asked a state prosecutor from outside his circuit to handle the hearing. That was Lelaine Brionis. Don't forget, Chapman was still charged with arson and murder, so not surprisingly, Brionis asked Murphy to deny bond and keep him locked up. Obviously the state would oppose bond and we would ask that no bond be set in this case. He's been convicted of murder and arson. He's had a taste of freedom now. More than ever, he would be a likely candidate to flee. Brionis then reminded Murphy that on the night of the fire, Chapman had pistol-whipped William Paul Chives. Chives, you'll recall, had shown up at Chapman's house near midnight accusing Chapman of calling Chives' aunt a red-headed crack whore. Chapman pointed his gun at Chives and then slapped him on the head with it. That shows Chapman can be a danger to others, Brionis argued. Then, Brionis recited Chapman's testimony from the hearing in 2013 that led to Chapman being granted a new trial. He then talks about what he did later that evening when he went to the Hughes residence. He said, me and Stephen decided to go back out because there was a guard across the street and he was trying to talk me into breaking into it. We did walk across the street. We was going to break into it and a car showed up and it spooked me and I did not break into it. This is someone who poses a risk to the property of the folks in Harrelson County and a danger to the people who live in this community. The only thing that stopped him from breaking into that barn was the fact that he saw a car drive by. Well, 
That got Judge Murphy's attention. He then had this exchange with Brionis. I'm sorry. That's what he said in the transcript. Brionis then read that portion of the transcript again. Then she told Murphy. That's what he said. Under oath. He's a danger to the people who live in this community. I can understand why Brionis made such an argument. It shows that Chapman considered breaking into a barn in Harrelson County to steal tools and equipment. But on the other hand, it seems strange to me that she would be using that as an argument. Why? Well, curious as it sounds, the barn break-in is part of Chapman's alibi. I know we've gone over this before, but let me remind you that it's undisputed that Chapman and his family left their duplex at 2 a.m. the night of the fire and went to their friend's trailer. That was about a 10-minute drive away. Police got the first 911 call about the fire at 3.19 a.m. Under that time frame, Chapman would have had about an hour to sneak out of the trailer and go back home to set the fire. Adding the business about the barn, sleazy as it sounds, shortens the amount of time Chapman would have had to leave the trailer, return to his duplex, and set the fire. So, here is the prosecutor using part of Chapman's alibi as a reason he should stay locked up. I guess what I'm saying is, this seems to be a somewhat inconsistent argument to be making. Briones then made a rather startling statement to the court. Now, the state is prepared to go forward to trial on this case on September 14th, which I think is your next trial calendar. We ask that no bond be given to this gentleman. He has admittedly, at the habeas, demonstrated that he's a danger to property and persons in this county. Yes, she was saying that the state would be ready to retry Chapman. Judge Murphy then asked Frank Hogue, a highly regarded criminal defense attorney representing Chapman at the hearing, whether Brionis had correctly read Chapman's testimony about planning the barn break-in. Hogue said she had, but he also said Chapman is a different person now than he was eight years ago. At the hearing were Chapman's mother, father, grandmother, aunt, and three of his four children. Hogue said Chapman's mother would put up her home in Forsyth, Georgia as collateral for a bond and that Chapman would live with her while he waited for a possible retrial. When all was said and done, the judge said he really didn't have a choice on setting bond. Eight years ago, when Chapman was awaiting his first trial, Murphy had granted him a bond of $75,000. He said he'd do the same thing now and require Chapman to wear an ankle monitor while living with his mother. After the hearing, Chapman's family was jubilant that he would no longer be locked up. Here's Wanda Young, Chapman's aunt as she walked out of the courtroom. We're just thrilled to death. Thrilled to death. It's been long enough. God's good. God, that's all I can say is God's good. Very exciting. Thank you. Did you hear that last voice? That was Chapman's young daughter, Chloe. But Chloe still had to wait two more days for her dad to walk out of jail. The bond had to be posted, and the electronic tracking device had to be fitted to Chapman's ankle. I was standing in the parking lot when Chapman emerged from the jail, this was eight years after he had been sentenced to life in prison. I introduced myself and told him what I was doing. I told him about breakdown, and I asked him if he had anything to say. At first, it appeared that he didn't want to say anything. But he thought for a moment and then spoke. I just thank God for grace, mercy, and freedom and for the truth. Thank you, Justin. As I was preparing to leave, Chapman then asked me a question. What's a podcast? he asked. His attorney, Mike Kaplan, was inside the jail with Chapman's family when Chapman walked into the lobby. After he crossed the threshold, he broke into tears. Um, 
His family was there. His infant daughter, who uh, was under one years of age when Justin was initially arrested, was there, uh, a nine-year-old girl, uh, to, to see her father walk out of the prison gates. And um, it was a very special moment. And uh, I plan to keep him out. In a recent interview, Jack Browning, the DA, said he has every intention of retrying Chapman for the arson and murder. As to the question of whether he has a conflict of interest and shouldn't participate, that will be up to Judge Murphy, Browning said. Not long after the bond hearing, Chapman's lawyers filed a motion to disqualify Browning and his office from prosecuting the case, citing potential conflicts of interest. So, did he do it? Did Justin Wayne Chapman set the fire that burned his house and killed his neighbor? I still don't know for sure. But Mike Kaplan, who has since started up his own law firm, Kaplan Cobb, is all but certain. I have no doubt that Justin Chapman is innocent. And I have that feeling because I have had the opportunity to review every piece of evidence in this case, to meet with Justin on on multiple occasions and hear his side of the story, and also look at the evidence that might point to others who perpetrated this horrible crime. George's criminal justice system charged Chapman in 2006, found him guilty in 2007, and then threw out the convictions in 2015. Along the way, the system broke down again and again and again, showing just how vulnerable the poor can be when facing prosecution in Georgia. Not for them, the Supreme Court's fancy inscription, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. While the heavens are still up there, people like Justin Chapman will continue to be swallowed up in foundering public defender systems. You know, I've never meant for this podcast to disparage the town of Bremen in any way. I've gotten to know Bremen, and I really like it. Every person I've met there has been extremely friendly and helpful. The Justin Chapman case just happened to take place in Bremen. This could have happened in any town in Georgia, if not any town in America. Now we're going to hear from a guy who knows a lot about that. Eight years ago, Jonathan Rapping founded what's known as Gideon's Promise in Atlanta. Gideon versus Wainwright was the landmark ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court that said defendants have the right to counsel. Gideon, which was handed down in 1963, is an inspiration for Rapping's organization. It's a nonprofit that trains and supports public defenders, especially those in broken systems. I asked Rapping how the breakdowns in this case could have happened. Powerlessness and unfairness seem to be built into the system, he says. We have a criminal justice system where, unfortunately, prosecutors are often given a message inconsistent with their obligation to justice. The message that prosecutors often get is, you must secure a conviction at all costs. Prosecutors sometimes convince themselves that they A, have the right person, and that B, justice is getting a conviction at all costs. And when prosecutors are focused on getting convictions at all costs, they can justify in their own mind not turning over information that might help the defense secure a not guilty verdict. And although turning over that information is in fact essential to justice in our system, prosecutors who are focused on convictions can lose sight of that. 
Rapping said Gideon's Promise works with public defender offices in 16 states, and you'll find breakdowns in every one of them. I think it is the exception rather than the rule that public defenders are able to give a client everything the client deserves, that they're able to give a client the kind of representation you or I would pay for. I ask Rapping, when you have instances of lawyers who are representing clients and are completely unprepared, whose job is it to hold them accountable? I believe that everyone in the system, the prosecutor is a minister of justice. They are responsible for making sure that the prosecution proceeds consistently with justice, that the accused gets a fair trial. And if the prosecutor sees that a defense lawyer simply isn't doing the things that the Constitution and the ethical rules demand, the prosecutor should stand up and say, Judge, we need to stop this right now and fix it. If the judge sees that a lawyer is not giving a client the kind of representation they deserve, the judge should stop that proceeding. And if they need to, get that client a lawyer who is able to give them the representation they deserve. But every person in the system has a responsibility to point out where the system is breaking when they see it before the consequences are irreversible. As for Chapman's public defender, Jan Hankins, Rapping said, I think Jan Hankins found herself in a situation that unfortunately many public defenders across the country and across Georgia find themselves in. They are feeling pressure to handle a case, to help move a case along quickly and efficiently. And even if they know they should slow things down because there are things that they need to do, there are pressures from many other sources that cause them to just acquiesce to the status quo and hope things go well. And so, we've come to the end of our story. For now, Jan Hankins lost Chapman's case and then, through sheer force of will and faith, made sure that he got a fair shake after all. It's a moral issue for me, um, a moral issue and a professional issue, uh, and an issue of faith. And that's the way people should be treated. That case had resulted in a conviction on my watch, and I felt duty-bound and ethically and morally to, to stick with the case. And frankly, I couldn't forget it. I couldn't sleep. You know, I woke up almost every night thinking about Mr. Chapman and his conviction, and I, I really didn't have an option to let it go. I am very excited about the prospect, very hopeful that he is going to see justice in his own case very soon. If Justin Chapman faces a new trial, I'll be there. If he's allowed to walk free, I'll be there. And I'll report back to you. You know, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has never done anything like this before, making a podcast. For me, it's been an amazing experience. And if you'd like for us to continue making them, I hope you'll let us know. As for now, thank you so very much for listening. Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson. Audio production by Chris Basta of CO3 Sound Atlanta. Story consultant Susanna Capaluto. 
Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Bert Roten, Eric Netherton, and Brian Anderson. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,